Well, you can't actually change sex. I had some people persuaded that I was a female, but I had never was never able to completely persuade myself. There is a lot of yearning and a lot of pain inside of even people who say that they're happier that they transitioned. And even the people who say that they're happy with transition would give up everything that they have in order to have transitioned 10 years earlier. And to me, that's a, a sign or a signal that something still isn't quite right. If you're totally happy with your transition, why would you trade it for anything? You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today, my guest is Corinna Cohn, who many of you probably know as the co-host of Heterodork's podcast, along with Nina Paley. You might also be familiar with Corinna's uh, opinion piece in the Washington Post, which is the first way that I came across their work. Uh, The opinion piece is titled, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was 19 and Had Sex Reassignment Surgery. Um, Corinna has also testified in Ohio regarding proposed medical legislation and in Indiana regarding uh, proposed legislations regarding how sports are regulated. Um, And Corinna also has a day job working in IT. Um, So Corinna is a very unorthodox thinker, hence the title heterodorks podcast as in heterodox, not heterosexual, by the way. Do you ever get, do people get confused by that? Do people think that you're referring to like being heterosexual in your podcast name? We were worried about that at first, but I think anybody who listens to us for very long quickly realizes that heterosexuality is skewered on our program. <laughs> it's it's not really centered. Okay. Got it. Well, and you have your clever little heterodorks, heterodox dorks. That's what you kind of specify what the name is about. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm excited to dive in. Uh, and today just so happens to be the same day that you released the episode that I was in on your podcast. So I don't know when this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist will come out, uh, but it's September 26th. And what was that? Episode 75 or something? Episode 75. Okay. Believe it or not. Yeah. And and very conveniently titled, easy to find. You called it Stephanie Wynn is some kind of therapist, which is just true. That's how you find me. Um, so we have a lot to dive into today, Corinna. I'm so glad you're here. Um, I want to maybe start off with talking about language. Um, so detransitioner is currently a term widely in use to describe people who've had any degree of regret uh, regarding medical or social transition. I mean, I know sometimes for people who haven't gone through any medical steps, um, we use the term desister. Um, but, you know, I think detransitioner is a pretty broadly encompassing term. And I, I don't know that it's the right term in the long run to describe 
an entire group of people with a really wide range of experiences. Obviously, you're somebody who falls outside of that term and and you're somebody who's very hard to place on any demographic map, right? Because you are somebody who had sex reassignment surgery at the age of 19, uh, which was many years ago. Didn't you say you're in your 40s, right? I am. I'm 47. So that was too long ago. Wow. Okay. And so you've, you've done the whole social medical and legal transition is into living as the opposite sex, but you've described feeling burned out, feeling disillusioned, um, having medical problems that you never would have signed up for. And just generally kind of being in this, this undefined no man's land that I think you, you jokingly said off the record as like the, the trans loser, like it, it didn't work for you. Um, and you, and we talked a little bit about trans burnout. So I'm curious, I mean, I've used the term victims of gender medicine to describe anyone who was misled, um, who was not given truly informed consent or who maybe did give informed consent knowing some of the risks, but maybe not being of sound enough mind or mature enough age or psychological development to really make those decisions for the rest of their lives. So, you know, I think victims of gender medicine is anybody who's been harmed by this stuff, kind of regardless of how they identify, regardless of how they think about it. But then people have brought up issues with that term as well. Like people, people don't like to think of themselves as victims. So I'm curious about kind of what language do you use to describe yourself? Um, is that question even exhausting for you? Because <laughs> you talk about just being so done with this stuff. Um, and what language do you think we ought to be using? And what kind of strengths and weaknesses do you see to any particular terms that are on the table? That's a great question with a lot of facets to it. Let me start with at least the term victims of gender medicine. And I agree, a lot of people don't like to see themselves as victims, even if they have been harmed by somebody who they trusted. I wonder if survivors of gender medicine might be a a marginal improvement on it, though. Because even if we don't see ourselves as victims, we have certainly experienced it. We've been through something which has had an important change on how we interact with the world and how other people see us. And we've, we're going to have to somehow deal with the lifelong effects of medicalization, whether it's hormone replacement therapy, which is a, another term which uh, I, I found out today is, is a matter of debate, or the surgical effects, which are irreversible. So I, I guess I did survive it. There are people who don't. There are people who die from complications of some of these surgeries, which can be extremely invasive, phalloplasty and vaginoplasty. And there are people who end up, uh, unfortunately, killing themselves at a rate compared to other people in, the, in their demographics at, at a much higher rate. Uh, there's some research that shows that people who have surgery have a higher rate of uh, attempted suicide or completed suicide than uh, some of the people who don't. So it's a uh, survivor maybe is the word. Um, yeah. Detransitioner. I think that that's a helpful label for making the conversation happen. Mm-hmm. Because if we get really hung up on 
the difference between a retransitioner or a detransitioner or a desister. I think anybody who has been through a period of trans identification, who has tried to um, put themselves out into the world and build relationships with people when they have forwarded or, or put forth that they are identifying as a different gender and that they have to unwind that somehow. Um, I think dis- desisting or, or detransition is at least a label that we can use for making the, the next set of pretty broad assumptions. Yeah. It's, it's practical in that it's a single word. Um, mm. And it's also misleading because, like you say, a lot of these things are irreversible or, you know, any steps that could potentially be taken to approximate some semblance of a reversal is just kind of more cosmetic surgeries. It doesn't restore the original functionality of that bodily tissue that's been lost. So the term detransitioner, I think some people have issues with it because it implies that there is such a thing as detransition, that you can just go backwards and you can't, right? So do people ever ask you, since you are critical of these issues, Corinna, why don't you just detransition? Oh, all the time. Okay. That's got to be infuriating. I'm sure you've already answered it. I have. Do you, do you want me to talk about it? If you don't mind. Well, I think we'll get into this maybe a little bit more, but you asked what words I use to describe myself. I te- Technically, I'm a, a male. I'm a man who has been medically feminized through hormone replacement therapy and surgery. And although I suppose I could probably start taking testosterone and see if that masculinizes me to some extent, it won't undo everything that 30 years of estrogen has done. So I'll, I, I will still have feminized traits, but then I will also be um, hairy on top of that. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not really enthusiastic about the idea of, of just switching to testosterone. So what, what am I? Um, I'm a person who grew up as a boy who had sex reassignment surgery and uh, have, has been on estrogen for, for years and years and years. So I'm, I'm physically a different person than a lot of men are. I'm still in that biological category. In terms of social categories, I, th- I think that that's a pretty interesting question because I'm, I'm sort of, no matter, no matter if somebody thinks of me as a, a woman or whether somebody thinks of me as a man, I'm still somewhere on a, the periphery of either of those categories because of what I've done to myself. I think we all need to take a moment, you know, those of us who haven't been through this to really think about the significance of what you say when you say 30 years of exogenous estrogen as a male, right? Um, You know, as a female, and I I hope any woman listening can intuitively relate to this, we're very sensitive to our monthly fluctuations, right? Um, We feel the pain of menstruation. We feel the energy burst of ovulation and the emotional crash leading up to menstruation again, right? We know how hormones affect us during pregnancy and after birth. 
and during menopause. We we know these from personal experience. I think for males, it's a little bit less intuitive, I would imagine, because your body isn't, you know, your hormonal cycles aren't so obvious, even though males also have their own cycles with, you know, testosterone goes up and down. I don't know too much about that, but, um, you know, when I, when I put myself in, in the experience of anyone who's been through any kind of this medical trans stuff, I think that just sounds like such a hormonal roller coaster. And I can imagine that if I'd been on something, any drug for 30 years, regardless of how I thought about that drug from a philosophical or political stance, uh, I would, I would be terrified to get off of it. Um, especially when there's, when we're in this no man's land of research. Um, and, and I imagine that doctors don't know what to do with people like you. Obviously you have to be on some kind of exogenous hormones. I mean, there are people who don't understand this for, so just for any listeners who, who don't know this yet, if a male has been castrated or a female has had a hysterectomy, then they've had body parts removed that produce their own natural hormones, which means they have to be on exogenous hormones. Without some kind of hormones in your body, all kinds of systems of the body uh, perish and are at danger, like your, your bones, for instance, right? So for you, Corinna, it's not a matter of just, can you just go off of estrogen? It's like if you would have to go on testosterone. And I can just imagine that from the standpoint of living in a human body with a human psyche that's vulnerable to hormonal fluctuations, that something like deciding to go back on testosterone or go on testosterone for the first time since you'd be taking it exogenously is like a really major decision. And you say it's not, it would never give you back the body that you had prior to all of this. It would just, I mean, this is just my guesswork. Tell me what's wrong or right about that or expand on any part you'd like to. Well, I started taking estrogen when I was 18. So all of my adult life, I've been taking it. So I can't even imagine what it would be like to, to switch to testosterone. I, I know that it has a, effects on your body, and, and your body has a lot of influence o- over how your mind works. It's a connected system. Your, your identity might be formed separately from your body, maybe. I don't know if I believe that, but um, your your body doesn't believe that. Your body is your body is you. Your bo- your body's not your your spirit. Your body's you, and so much of what we think of as con of as conscious choice is actually something that our body is deciding for us, and that we're just rationalizing. So going on testosterone would be not just a, a change to what type of hormone my cells use to regulate, it would be a, a huge change, a huge change. Not a and, decision that you can make lightly. No, and uh, talking to some men who have detransitioned and have been taking testosterone, who are a lot younger than I am, um, testosterone also reawakens your sex drive, which if you... Uh, have had a penectomy, 
is maybe not necessarily the easiest thing to to deal with. Yeah, that sounds super hard. I don't know how in, open. In, in fact, it's just the opposite. It's not even existent. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> that's that's more of a heterodorks joke. I'll, I'll be more serious. You're very irreverent on your podcast. I mean, this this is this is really to avoid double entendres. This is really challenging stuff here. <laughs> yes. So. And let's go there to your comfort level. I know you you talk about challenging things all the time, but I don't expect that you're just going to be down for whatever, whenever, because these are painful things to talk about. But I, I believe you say that you've pretty much lost the ability to enjoy any sexual pleasure. Is that right? Uh, with a partner, yes. Without getting too, too uh, detailed, I can, well, gosh, when you've, when you've said this much, there's like, only the pretense of pretending that you're not saying it. So I may as well say I can masturbate and have a little bit of pleasure that way. But my um, sense of pleasure, even that way, is, is really attenuated. It's, it's just a, a puff of a, of a sneeze of a, of a sensation as compared to what I remember from a teenager. And this is why people like you and me both are outspoken on this issue because these things hurt people. They impair functioning. They take away pleasure. They add pain. Have you heard of these surgeries going well for people? Because I, I realize my vantage point is skewed with all the information I take in, but everything I learn about is like, if a kid goes on puberty blockers at Tanner stage two, they're never going to have an orgasm. You know, and then everything I know about vaginoplasties and um, phalloplasties and all of these surgeries, I only hear about things going horribly wrong. And it just sounds like things that shouldn't be happening in the first place. And then you hear these stories of people who are coming out saying, like, there's this video. I don't know if you've been following Jaleesa Vine. No, I haven't. Uh, she's uh, kind of. I believe she's newer to come out uh, as a detransitioner. I found her on YouTube and then she's just starting to get active on Twitter. But she had, you know, she's somebody who had a uh, phalloplasty. And there's this really vulnerable video of her on YouTube saying, I owe you all an apology for the fact that I glorified this. I was wrong to glorify this. I was lying to myself. This is actually awful. And I hope I didn't encourage anyone else to do it. Um so, you know, when you when you see stories of people coming out saying, I was wrong to have glorified this, I was trying to delude myself thinking that I did the right thing, but actually I've hurt myself and I regret this and I should have never been allowed to do this. When you hear these stories, it's just hard to believe that there's anybody out there just enjoying a great sex life with their, you know, surgically created body parts. There, so from the conversations I've been having, and even way back in the past, you know, things are a little bit different now than they used to be. But I have heard that some people are able to have uh, satisfactory sex, depending on a certain number of conditions, because of the way the neo-vagina is constructed. It has, uh, you, you have to dilate it to keep it elastic and... Which sounds super painful, useful. by the way. 
Dilation? Yes, it, it certainly can be. And I think for most people who have the procedure that the range of sizes that you can accommodate is probably uh, much, much less than a woman can because a woman's vagina is constructed out of different tissue. And constructed is not the right word. It is, it is, it is different tissue. It's, it's, it's natural um, state. And the construction of a, a neo-vagina, it just doesn't have the same capabilities. It doesn't have the same elasticity. And it's uh, just structurally different. So whenever you hear anybody say that a neo-vagina is just the same as a regular vagina or that uh, laughably that gynecologists can't tell the difference, like what a load of crap that is. Then um, they shouldn't be practicing. Well, you're, you're, you're crazy if you think that a gynecologist wouldn't be able to tell. I'm sorry, maybe crazy is not a very nice word. You're, you are fooling yourself. And you're not fooling anybody else, however, except for maybe a small group of vulnerable people. Like myself, when I was a teenager, people who are not worldly enough to know that these are lies or, or coping strategies. Uh, and it, nobody else is going to believe that a surgically constructed approximation of a vagina is going to be able to have the same sensitivity or functionality as a woman's vagina. So there are some people who do report that I trust that report that they can have some limited uh, sexual interactions, but um, it's, I don't think in any circumstance it would be comparable to a, a woman's vagina. If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, look no further. I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. How do you think it is that 
that they're able to sell this, that, that the gender industry is becoming this billion dollar industry where people are just chomping at the bits to get their bits chomped. <laughs> you're just, just trolling me. <laughs> it's because I listened to my episode of your show today and you're so irreverent. <laughs> Ah, no, but I mean, we're laughing because it's really dark stuff. And actually, that's another thing I wanted to pick your brain about because you seem and and actually there was a Twitter comment asking about this. I'm curious about your sense of humor. It seems like part of what keeps you afloat. And as you know, and as I'll share with our listeners, if they don't know this already, I'm working on a book and that tentative working title for that is a detransition survival guide. Um, You know, obviously we question whether detransition is the right term. Uh, It's just a work in progress, but all right. So I find myself kind of trying to ask you two questions at once and they're actually very different questions. So let me sort this out because I'm curious about resilience and humor and sort of life after disillusionment with the trans stuff. Um, But also why and how well, no, I have ideas, I'm sure you do, as to why, but really the how of how is this stuff getting sold to people when the end result is that they're losing bodily health, pleasure, and autonomy? Sure. Do you want me to start with that second one? I think we can dispense of it sure. pretty quickly. Yeah. As... as uh, Richie, the the detransitioner, pointed out recently, the trans customers are the best marketers for the trans product. We just brag about the procedures that we have. We talk about how, how much better we feel about them. And the fact that every time that we get one, it seems to only emphasize the things about us that remind us of our natal sex and send us scrambling after the next procedure, that tends to be overlooked. And instead, the community is extremely affirming and extremely validating about any of the work that you do have done. And uh, people will tell each other pretty frankly, well, you'll you'll need facial feminization surgery to pass, or um, your body will look more feminine if you have breast implants. I'm sure on the, the trans male side, the trans guy side, it's probably similar comments. So we are constantly pumping each other up um, with affirmation and pushing one another to, to have more work done. And uh, there's a second darker side of that as well, which is that complaints are generally categorized as um, being weapons wielded against the trans community. So if you say, oh, this, I went to this doctor, this procedure didn't work very well, then what people will tell you is, well, that's just you. That's not everybody. Almost everybody who went to go see that doctor is happy with their results. And if you keep complaining about it, that doctor will stop servicing the community. And so you just talking about your problems is creating a threat for other people who want access to the healthcare, quote unquote healthcare. Right. It sounds like a really toxic culture. And it makes sense to me that, you know, anybody 
with the normal human psyche would feel a great deal of ambivalence about making such a huge decision and about about going through a medical procedure at all. I mean, I recently had to have a biopsy taken from my lip because I had what I thought was potentially a precancerous growth and it could have been, right? And so the dermatologist recommended a biopsy. Turns out, thank goodness, it was just a um, benign reaction to the sun, but it could have been precancerous. So we needed to get it checked out. But even knowing that I was doing something um, so necessary as to screen for cancer, just the act of having a tiny bit of tissue scraped off of my lip, mm. I, I went into a full-blown panic attack, you know? <laughs> and I'm somebody who teaches people tools for managing panic attacks. Obviously, I got through it in it, but um, I, I had imagined that that would just pale in comparison to the anxiety and doubt that anyone would feel going into a major medical procedure. And I've talked in some of my other episodes about you know, how ambivalence is healthy and how, you know, for instance, in my episode with Marcus Evans, the British psychoanalyst, you know, why not feel ambivalence? Isn't that kind of a sign that there's, you know, maybe something not quite right here? And so my my guess about what's happening there is that that there's the psyche has to find a way to split off that doubt, right? And that not only can you not tolerate your own doubt, you can't tolerate anybody having doubts about this. You can't tolerate anybody being critical about it. And in fact, you need as many people as possible to believe in these things and make the same choices that you have made or that you're planning on making, because that just shores up your sense that this is the correct path. And I I wonder if some of the fervor behind trans-identified people selling these procedures to each other is like, I need everyone else to believe as I do and to do as I do so that I can just feel that much more assured that I haven't just done something horribly wrong to myself. I don't know if you have heard, but these procedures are life-saving procedures. <laughs> if, if you don't have breast implants mm. and if you don't have vocal training from a, a voice therapist, that could kill you. That's the argument. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty strange to me that it doesn't seem like there's any other category of cosmetic surgery, which gets the same credit for being life-saving as the cosmetic surgeries that are offered to patients who identify as transgender. But anyone in the community will tell you that these cosmetic surgeries which don't change anything fundamentally about our self-image or our psyches beyond the damage that they do, are nevertheless uh, completely necessary for us to be able to survive another day. Was there a time that you thought that? No. So it was, I mean, you had these surgeries before they were nearly as popular as they are now. What were your expectations, if you don't mind sharing, going into the treatments that you had at the time? I mean, I don't know that treatment's the right word, but. Every time I talk about it, I feel like I'm a a step further away from what the original memory was. So it's. Right. It's it's, uh, hard for me to reconstitute what stupid, or excuse me, uh, 
naive and inexperienced uh, jejun uh, 18-year-old me thought, thought that I would get. But there is a part of me that really believed that I would have a sex change, that I would have a, a, my a quote-unquote normal body, and that I would be able to integrate socially as a woman, and that I would be able to live a normal life at that point. Really believed it. I thought that that was what was going to happen. How, how uh, inaccurate exactly was that? Well, you can't actually change sex. So at, at minimum, it was wholly inaccurate in terms of uh, ever being able to achieve that objective. In terms of having a social transition where uh, a lot of the people I encountered thought that I was a woman, um, I think it was pretty pretty successful judging from some of the interactions I've had with people when I uh, decided that I didn't want to uh, be what, what we used to call stealth, um, be a, a fully assimilated uh, trans person. Um, when I did bring in some of my confidants in and, and tell them about it, there were a lot of people who evidenced shock at, at the news. So apparently, um, I had some people persuaded that I was uh, female, but no, I did. I had. I had never was never able to completely persuade myself, and that is, I think, probably true of every single trans person. What makes you say that? There is a lot of yearning and a lot of pain inside of even people who um, say that they're happier that they transitioned, but they will still, the way, the way that they interact with you. I, I, I talk to a lot of people on uh, social media and a fewer number, but a significant number of people in person. And even the people who say that they're happy with transition are um, w- would give up everything that they have in order to have transitioned 10 years earlier. And to me, that that's a, a sign or a signal that something still isn't quite right. If you're yeah, totally happy with your transition, why would you trade it for anything? And that's, those are the edge cases that are being used to push this idea that the humane thing to do is to trans children as early as possible. Mm, yes. So there's um in in the gender critical world there's the debate over the concept of true trans. Can I ask, are you a believer in the idea of true trans? Do I believe that anybody is truly trans? Well, that's a an interesting question. Let me try to define true trans a little bit because some people may have not heard of it. So the idea is that are there any people who, when they were born, that there is some condition of their biology, whether it's following some developmental pathway in utero, um, maybe because of the uh, so-called hormone wash theory, or whether there's, there's some other quality about that person that makes it so that uh, from the moment that they're born, that it is inevitable that they will be a trans person. That's that's basically true trans, right? I'll, I, I I'll work with that. your definition. Yeah, I'm tr- tr- trying to have a generous definition, yeah. right? That tries to include right. a lot of a lot of uh, potential explanations. 
I, I don't think that anybody is truly trans. Um, I do think that there is evidence that different uh, conditions in utero relating to hormone levels might influence whether somebody is more masculine or more feminine. But I don't think that somebody who is uh, masculine is therefore uh, a trans man or somebody who's uh, more naturally feminine is therefore um, a trans woman. I, I just don't think that those two things logically fit together. Um, it might make somebody more inclined to want to transition. It might make them more interested in, in walking that path to try to resolve why they seem different um, temperamentally from other people of the same sex. But uh, I think that most of that is because of our culture just not having a, a wide enough tolerance for people of one sex uh, for showing different types of um, behavioral traits. What about the debate over kind of how we treat adults versus children? Because I think that the thing that people are obviously the most fired up about, and that I am too, is about safeguarding children, right? So on the pro-trans side of the debate, you have this belief uh, that you know, you have to transition children the earlier, the better. Kids know who they are. Don't force them to go through wrong sex puberty, yada, yada, right? Mm. And then on the gender critical side, this is where I stand. Um, that is child abuse. And these kids are in no position to be making those kinds of decisions. And they're highly susceptible to social influence. And um, we're, we're going to see a lot of people facing massive regret over this in the near future. Um, but a lot of people say... Adults should be able to do whatever they want. We don't care about that. We're just talking about children. As somebody who uh, had, quote unquote, sex reassignment surgery at the age of 19, when you were a young adult, how do you feel about that? And what kinds of, what kind of freedoms or medical services do you think should be available to consenting adults at this point with what we know about these medical procedures. Did you notice that in the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, the, the standard of care eight guide that was published in earlier this month in September, that it had a chapter on eunuchs? Uh-huh. I think that no matter how you feel about that, that there has for, for many, many years been an underground scene of uh, men who castrate themselves or castrate other men. And to some extent, I think that if you don't make some of these services available, that you'll have routinely have other forms of injury from things like self-castration, um, from uh, silicone injection. I don't know if you know about that or not, but that is a, a trend that tends to happen more with um, what we, we can say are, are trans women of color but who inject uh, silicone in order to um, create curves underneath the skin to look more womanly. Um, the more that you drive some of this stuff underground, I think the, you'll have uh, adults who still try to do it and just end up with, with greater injuries. To the extent that 
It's paid for under um, tax-funded health care. I think there's a responsibility for the government to make sure that our limited resources are, are used well. So if there's not good evidence that these procedures really are life-saving or even life-improving, that they shouldn't be covered. And I, I think that the onus should be on the people providing the service or, or the procedures to show that they are safe and effective rather than just uh, starting with the default that they'll be covered and that we will hope to see some data in the long term that they are safe and effective. There should be more research and there should be more of a, an experimental mindset. But I, I would say that it should be possible for adults to make these choices and that the best way to help adults make good choices is, is to ensure that there's publication of data and that it's something that any potential seeker has access to review and is able to understand before they have irreversible work done on them. That's interesting. You're coming at it sort of from a harm reduction standpoint. Um, first of all, I don't know nearly as much as you do about the underground culture of people trying to do these things to themselves or others um, without medical supervision. Um, but it makes me think of the harm reduction approach to drugs, right? There, there are people who would go so far as to say all narcotics should be legal. There should be no criminalization whatsoever. And we should, you know, supply people with clean needles, needle exchanges, things like that, you know, which you could apply that harm reduction mentality to everything, right? It's the same, it's the same logic behind the idea that doctors should teach quote unquote safer binding mm -hmm. to girls, right? That, well, if girls are going to bind their breasts anyway, they should learn the quote unquote safer ways. That's highly debatable because none of it is safe. Um, but that's certainly one approach. And I think there's, you know, I'm not going to do a thorough promotion or takedown of harm reduction without really looking at the data because you have to kind of look at what are the long-term effects. Um, like you're saying, you know, what's, what's the research? I think we can't treat these things like they're in a void though, right? Because they are highly socially contagious depending on how people are talking about them, thinking about them, what information people are sharing about them on, on what forums and the kind of culture around these things definitely impacts how much people are going to want to do them. So I think there's also a lot of debate around, um, you know, the, the likelihood of regret if people do go into these surgeries as adults. Um, and then the, you know, you make the point that we shouldn't necessarily have taxpayer dollars funding things that don't have a solid evidence base as being ne necessary medical care. I would also suggest that you know, if, if people are going to get these hormones and surgeries, what what rights should they have? You know, should like because part of informed consent, if one part of informed consent should be you may lose all sexual pleasure, you may have incontinence, you may have chronic pain, you may have elevated risk of diabetes, you know, just go through the list of all the things that could happen. Um, you know, what about the, you may not be liked and accepted everywhere you go. You may not be seen as a woman or a man of your choosing. You may get funny looks in bathrooms. 
You know, you may not be allowed, if you commit a crime, you may not be allowed to go to the prison of your choosing because we don't know how the laws on that will evolve. Like, I feel like the informed consent about the social aspect of trying to transition one's identity is kind of, it's missing altogether. It's more like the medical providers are saying, don't worry, we're going to transform society for you. We're going to roll out the red carpet. We're going to convince your parents that they now have a happy son and not an unhappy daughter. We're going to, you know, as medical professionals and as mental health care professionals, we're also going to become activists so that when you're not here in our office, we're going to be campaigning for your rights to be treated as the opposite sex wherever you go. I feel like part of the messaging. Could I interject for just a second here? Mm -hmm. Because I want to point out to most people listening who who might not have ever heard of WPATH, Mm. but that's that's the group that creates the standards of care, quote unquote, that are, that are followed by most of the medical professionals. Everything that you just said is in the WPATH publication. So you're, you're not, you're, you are not just saying, uh, speculating about the agenda of the clinicians. This is actually in the practitioner manual. W- without exaggeration, mm-hmm. everything that you said is in there. And increasingly, it's in the guidelines that are upheld as, you know, the standards that therapists should have. Like, the American Association of Marriage and Family Therapists put out a guideline a few months ago that my friend Jake Wiskirchen and I from episode two just ripped into it together. And I'd love to do an episode just ripping through that. Um, But it's like, our job is being redefined to be activists, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, it's it's my personal belief that nobody in their right mind would actually sign up for this stuff if they knew what it really entailed. And I think socially too, right? If if people had realistic expectations, right? If it wasn't like I'm entitled to a, to a world that sees me and treats me the way I want to be seen and treated, which by the way, nobody is entitled to that. Like People who aren't trans um, don't go around feeling entitled (laughs) to, you know, being seen the way that we want to be seen. We realize it's outside of our control, right? And, you know, I wrote in in my article, Human Rights are Special Privileges, I unpacked the demands of trans rights activists. Like, the demand to be treated with dignity in prison, nobody gets treated with dignity in prison, okay? Nobody gets seen the way they want to be seen, in prison, prison is like lowest common denominator. Um, it's it's incredibly dehumanizing, right? Um, anyway, I just, I wonder, you know, the question like, should anyone be able to access these things? Well, what what is the informed consent? You know, should taxpayer dollars cover it? Should healthcare plan dollars cover it? What will be the likelihood of regret? And then what do people expect the world to do for them? Because I feel like unless you really obtain the consent of every individual in society and if that consent is given freely rather than under pressure or coercion of job loss, reputation, destruction, you know, and the kinds of intimidation tactics that these activists are using. Like if everyone freely agreed, yeah, we feel good about this, right? And it wasn't coming from a place of pressure or coercion, then maybe we could talk. But, you know, it's like 
if I'm being asked, well, would I support a 30-year-old, let's say, someone who's made it past the age of 25 when our prefrontal cortex really completes maturing, if someone was the age of 30 and had felt like they wanted this and that it was the right choice for them and they, you know, had the income to pay for it out of pocket, they didn't expect taxpayer dollars to pay for it, they really knew what they were signing up for and they still wanted to do it, would I support it? You know, well, like, would I be allowed to have a conversation with that person and be like, I still don't want you in my bathroom? You know, like, I feel like that's your choice. That's your choice, right? I feel like any choice that we make comes with natural consequences. Like, and and this is where <laughs> I can think of some analogies that people would consider very problematic. Like, for example, um, I don't think there's any excuse for rape. I'm not a rape apologist. Um, however, as a woman, I'm not going to dress like a prostitute and walk down the street alone at night. Now, if I were sexually assaulted, heaven forbid, in that situation, it would still absolutely be the assaulter's fault. I would not blame myself for that. But I also make educated choices about the situations I put myself in, right? That's, it's, again, it's not making an excuse for other people's bad behavior. It's just saying, I know the world I'm living in and I'm going to conduct myself accordingly. Because the world's not safe. Yeah, the world is, I, I and, and like, that's what it is to be a woman, is to, to know amongst other things that you don't live in a world that's safe or that caters to you. As a therapist, I've gotten an up close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving your cells the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. I'm just curious about kind of life after trans disillusionment. You know, you talked about how you didn't get that so-called gender euphoria, or if you did, it was short-lasting and transitioning didn't solve all your problems. It wasn't what it was cracked up to be. You're also 
in such a different time in life now than you were. I mean, at 19, now you're 47. Um, and you have just an evolved personality and a different perspective. Um, but you seem pretty even keeled. You have a great sense of humor. Um, one of the Twitter questions was actually for this. So maybe I'll go ahead and look at that question, but I'm just kind of curious, at least to start the conversation more broadly about what is life after the disillusionment, right? How do you come to terms with it? What gives you meaning and fulfillment, even though there are things that have been lost? It sounds cliche to say this, but life really is precious to... I don't know. I'll give you a, a silly anecdote. Maybe, maybe it means something deeper. Maybe not. I'm I'm taking tennis classes, and I ran from one side of the tennis court to the other side of the tennis court when I didn't have to. And the tennis instructor asked, uh, "Why Why are you running? Are you Are you a runner?" I said, "No. I just I'm I'm so thankful that I can do it. That that's why I'm doing it." I'm so grateful that I have the ability uh, at 47 just to to just dash somewhere like I did when I was a, a little kid. And to be able to still do that as an adult is a, a gift, and I'm just enjoying it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's life, mm-hmm. is we have one go around. We have all of these sorts of pleasurable things that we can still do. I... For me, I have a daily ritual of having coffee in the morning. That's pleasurable. And I have a little bit of chocolate at night. That's pleasurable. And going out and the way the sun hits the atmosphere at this time of year and Mm -hmm. and around autumn, and it creates those crazy colors that, that you get when the sun hits at a certain angle. And it's the pinks and the blues and the, the silvers and the clouds, like, like visual pleasure, beauty, right? Mm-hmm. So being able to appreciate all of the, the 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 sensate things that we can do in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have to identify as a woman or, or uh, tell everybody that I'm a man to uh, participate in the the beauty and the wonder of everything. Do I? Mm-hmm. I mean, I can be a I can be a strange person and and just live with some of the the decisions that I made and. Mm-hmm. still avail myself of the the wonders of the universe. Mm-hmm. You know, I love that. And it reminds me of one of my favorite songs. Uh, have you ever heard um, this artist called Mount Wolf? I haven't. And there's a song called Bergs. And it, it really what it is is just audio from a teaching by meditation teacher whose name is, I believe, Guy Bergs. I think that's his first name. It could be wrong. Turns out he has a podcast, which I need to check out. Um, but it's a beautiful song. It's just kind of this, this freely given insight from meditation set to music that really helps you reflect more deeply on it. And he talks about like the wonder of what you came here to be a part of on earth. And that at some point you lost that wonder and you started wondering about yourself And in wondering about yourself, you forgot what you came here to be a part of. And that's, that's the end of this like several minute speech. 
And it just gives me chills thinking about it. And I've been thinking about that in the context of the book I'm writing and how when you talk about life is so precious, right? There's only so much time we have. And it seems like all this fixation on gender identity. I mean, we talk about gender all day long, but what about the identity piece? It's the fixation on identity that I also think is the problem. You know, the fixation on who am I and how do I want to be seen and what name and pronouns do I want to go by and how do I want to modify my body? It's me, 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 right? And it's that focus on yourself can make us less happy right? People think that therapy, that mental health is all about focusing on yourself. Well, it is and it isn't. You know, if you find that after years of therapy, you still spend a lot of time ruminating on yourself, um, then it it might not actually be progress for you. You might be kind of stuck in the part of the brain that likes to ruminate on yourself, which is the same part that, you know, kind of gets you stuck in cycles of anxiety and depression. And what I noticed about what you just said, Corinna, was that none of it had to do with self-rumination. It was the joy of being alive and getting to run on the tennis court and and the wonder of the sights and sounds around you. And that's the recipe for joy, right? It's when you forget about yourself and you're actually here noticing what you're a part of. I was also reminded as I heard you talking about the joy of running on the, the tennis field court. Um about how one of the things I want to write about in the book is finding hobbies that bring you joy. And I recently had an experience where um, I discovered that I love boogie boarding at the age of 37. Awesome. And um, the the not so awesome part, Corinna, is that I spent years of my life living in places where I could have been boogie boarding the whole time. And now I live in Portland, Oregon where I have to go a long ways out of my way to do this thing that I love. And I kept thinking back about how, you know, I went boogie boarding a couple of times when I was really little. And if only someone had noticed, if only someone had just noticed how much I loved it and said, wow, Stephanie really loves to boogie board. We should make sure she does that again. You know, my whole life would have been different. But it's also on me, the fact that at, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, I think about all these years that I was living in Hawaii or California, you know, in places that I could have gone out and done it. And it just never occurred to me. Although I did have the thought every now and then I'd be like, I bet surfing would be really good for me. Nah, I don't, (laughs) I I couldn't find the courage. You know, it turns out like, yeah, surfing's challenging, but have you ever gone body surfing? It's a lot easier and it's so fun. And it turns out I am actually pretty good at catching a wave at the right moment. And so I just got back from a trip to visit family where I was able to go boogie boarding. And the only other time I've gone boogie boarding in my adult life was right before I got sick with COVID. So I went to Mexico, discovered I loved boogie boarding, got sick, was sick for seven months. And then as soon as I was not sick again, I got to go again. So I've been thinking about that and thinking about how, you know, sometimes it's childhood emotional neglect when someone's not paying attention to us, when someone's not really noticing who is Corinna or who is Stephanie and what lights them up, right? That we don't have that external scaffolding to help us notice ourselves, to help us develop that ability, not to think about, oh, who am I and all this endless navel gazing, but to recognize what our true, what truly lights us up, which is not about an identity. It's about 
wow, playing in the waves is really fun. Catching a wave is incredible, right? That rush or that rush that you get from tennis. Anyway, I don't, I don't know that I have a specific question, but I just want to know what, what that sparks in you. It's pretty interesting. Uh, I, I think I'm going to make a, a wrong observation here, but I'm going to at least air it out so that I can think about it. Pretty sure that this is wrong. But I'm thinking about a lot of the profile people who I interact with on Twitter who are antagonistic towards me because of some of my views, which are perfectly reasonable and, and level-headed. I don't know why they upset people. But uh, there, there are so many things that are in common with some of these profiles. Like, um, very frequently that they have material on there that's not appropriate for children, adult material. Uh, people who talk about having disabilities, uh, talk about or, or list different types of demographic identities that they relate to. As you're talking about your experience with, with boogie boarding and I was talking about tennis, I can't think of a single time that I've, I have had an interaction with one of these individuals where they list anything in there about the, the sort of like physical activities that they enjoy. Camping or hiking or surfing or uh, disc golf or anything like that. I can't remember a single time that that's been in a profile. I'm, yeah. I'm sure there's an exception, but I, I, I just can't summon one. No, they're too busy being self-important victims who can't get any pleasure out of life because the system is oppressing them. You know, it, it would disrupt their entire worldview to discover that they could do something as simple as, you know, rent a tennis racket or a boogie board for $10 a day and get out there and run around and play and actually feel what it is to be alive. You know, the fact that that is so mm. close within reach would really disrupt the whole worldview of someone who's, who's bent on an identity of being miserable and oppressed because that reinforces their worldview. Oh my gosh. What if it's so important? I hope this isn't true. I, I hope this is just uh, a dark thought that is totally false. But what if some people really have bound themselves so tightly to that negativity that they're too frightened to let go? and grow into something else. Yeah. Oh yeah, they're terrified. They won't have their friends. They won't have they won't have the um the signifiers of a miserable person anymore. So they they'll they'll lose what they know. Right. You know, this reminds me, I, I posted a, a thread on Twitter recently of um I was reading Maria Keffler's book, Desist, Detrans and Detox, Getting Your Child Out of the Gender Cult. And um, toward the end, she has a list of fears that the cult induced in kids that they'll, they'll need help unpacking those fears. You know, fear, fear of being straight or fear of being gay, fear of losing community, fear of, you know, all of these things. And I think that's part of it, right? Fear of joy, fear of success, fear, fear of being able to move on or to discover that you love something that maybe was too simple or dorky or unpopular or too much within reach because you were addicted to the struggle. 
I think these are important things to that, you know, in my book, I'm going to need to help people address these fears. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com shop, where you will find goods and services I have personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. Um, I don't want to take too much more time without going through the questions people have for you because people have a lot of questions for you on Twitter. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that. You did. I, I saw. Um, can, can we can we do uh, maybe you you judge which uh, the top couple ones are the most provo- thought provoking ones? Yeah. Let's see. Okay, sixteen comments. You want me to be the judge of which of these? Are the, I do. Uh, I do. Okay. Um, and then I'll I'll go through and try to answer some of them on on Twitter, and maybe we'll link that thread in the show notes. All right. So it was Rory who asked you, "How do you maintain what looks from the outside like such serene equanimity? Um, you are one of the the smartest and most fair minded people that Rory knows online, and in discussion with what appears remarkable self regulation. What is your secret?" I was not always uh, producing that sort of affect, and there are some times that I still grouch at people, so I'm not a, a, a paragon by any means. But sometime in 2015, I realized that I was going to start becoming a lot more public about my thoughts on this issue, and I realized that because of that, I could be jeopardizing my career and I could be jeopardizing my friendships, and I could be jeopardizing my shelter. And I thought about it and started putting plans into place to mitigate some of those risks. And I don't have fear. I just, um, something weird happened, Stephanie, and I don't know why, I just, I don't feel fear anymore. And so I don't get that defensive when people attack me because I I don't get upset by it. I just realize that most people are working out some of their own insecurities. If it helps them take a couple of steps forward, I am glad to have been the foil for them to, to make that effort. There was somebody just in the last day who quote tweeted me and wrote something really snarky about something that I'd written. And I wrote back under, under, under the, the thread and I said, I appreciate that you took the time to consider my point of view. Because, <laughs> you know, they, they, they disagree with it, but they took the time to highlight it and share it to their followers. So that means that they read it and thought about it. So thank you. Uh, I just, I'm, I'm just prepared for the criticism. Mm. Uh, I, some of it I already know is going to be fair criticism. There, there are times that people uh, say things to me that are, I, I consider it, I think about it, change my mind about stuff. And I, I don't have to retreat into any sort of ideological fortress because mm. I'm not afraid of being wrong about stuff. I'm open to changing my mind about it. So 
I think that's about as close to an answer as I can get. Have you read The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield? I have not. What is that about? It's excellent. Um, it's, it's about the struggle to move past all the sneaky forms resistance takes and do your work as an artist, whatever that work is, you know, whether it's having a podcast or starting a business or writing a book. Um, and it's, it's very clever, well done, very succinct as well. And uh, there's this, I would say there's a lot of like one page chapters, just a lot of like kind of standalone few paragraph pieces that you can take. And there are several of those on what he calls turning pro, going from being an amateur to a professional in terms of how you orient toward what it is that you're here to do in the world. And so I just finished The War of Art last night and then I started his uh, a book that comes after that that in the series, which is just called Turning Pro, and it expands on those concepts more. And when you talk about losing your fear and embracing the ups and downs that are just a part of the process, yes, you will receive criticism, and some of it will be valued, valuable, and you'll take what you can from it, and others, just whatever, let it roll off your back. It's not for you. Um, that just reminds me of some of the concepts in that book. Mm. So somebody's stealing my ideas. All right. <laughs> what's, what, what's his name? We're gonna we're gonna come after him. Oh, Stephen Pressfield. Yep. I, I think he'd be up for a fight. He's uh, he's got got that rough around the edges kind of personality that enjoys a good fight, from what I can tell. Um, but also isn't here to waste his time getting into useless arguments if it's a distraction from whatever his real work is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he he had some brilliant chapters that were almost like reading koans about like how getting yourself into trouble, drama, addiction, bad habits, all of these things are just sneaky forms that resistance takes to avoiding your real work. Um, Hmm. So in the comments for you on Twitter, Orla Moylan Hegarty B-Math Mask. Okay, that's a a name. That's, that's, Orla. You know Orla? Is this someone you know? I know Orla. Okay. Is that a Burning Man photo? Yep, that is a Burning Man playa photo. Um, I'd love to hear about Corinna's media access as a kid slash teenager slash young adult and how it may or may not have affected or influenced dysphoria. I'd love your thoughts more generally on this too from a therapist's perspective. But of course, you were a kid at a different time. So what era are we talking about here? I would be growing up with uh, the very first generation of VHS movies and early cable access, which is like 13 channels, not 800 channels. So it was still, Fox was still the brand new network and it joined the other three, the big three, ABC, CBS, and NBC. And then the PBS channel and UHF channels, which the young people have no idea what that is. Think about YouTube, but over the air. And that was about it. So uh, books, of course, you know, library books. Oh my gosh. Um, I'm going to divert for a second. When I was growing up, some of my favorite authors, like passionately, um, uh, Madeline Lingell's books, 
um, Diane Duane's books, uh, which is a fantasy series about uh, two young wizards. Um, oh gosh. Uh, I hate that I can't bring up her name because uh, she, she wrote um, The Hero and the Sword and um, Sunshine, and she, she's written a couple of other books. I was so into fantasy books with female protagonists. And the, the young nerdy girl who finds a source of power and, and uses that to become powerful again, it was, it was like, that was my genre. And when you ask about media broadly, that's so much different from just television because it's still something that influences you. And I don't know what it is, and I don't know if I'm ever going to unpack it, but there was something about those authors that just, like those books just spoke to me so much. Um, I, th I think the protagonist's name was uh, Meg mm -hmm. in, in the Madeline Langell books. Yeah, I was a big um, fan of those books too. Yeah, I, I'm like, oh, like it's, it's me. <laughs> but mm -hmm. it's, of course it wasn't. I was a boy. But mm -hmm. like there are so many traits of that character that just resonated with me. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that you're consuming anything like what kids are consuming today, but there was just that archetypal, you, you related to the female protagonist and that was maybe part of your discomfort with being male growing up, would you say? Or part of your kind of fantasy of what it would be like to, to be female? I don't know. It's pretty interesting because I'm, I'm thinking about the, the protagonists that had boys in them that I read was, wasn't nearly as many, but um, one of them was about a, a, a young detective, a boy who was a detective. And those are pretty fun, but they just were not as, they weren't the same. Hmm. And I just wonder, I bet probably at the phase that I was growing up that there weren't any like all of the all of the male protagonists were designed to show uh, a, a certain aspect of masculinity, and there just probably weren't very many male characters for me to to latch onto mm -hmm. as as being my avatar. Okay, and it was a lot easier to do that with the, some of the other books that I was reading. So that brings up a related question that I'll ask for you, which was, what kinds of male protagonists were missing? What, if you think about yourself as a little boy or a teenager and think about mm. like any young lads who maybe had a similar temperament to you, like what kind of male role model did you need to see or did they need to see that you could have related to? Uh, well, that, see, you ask really good questions. A genre of fiction that I enjoy a lot as an adult are, again, um, some fantasy novels that, that have female protagonists, but they're more for adult audiences. And there are a couple of authors who write books where the, the female protagonist uh, gets into a relationship with a man who is also kind of a half, half partner figure, but also half father figure, male, male protector who's like strong and and um, stern, 
I just like this. And I don't know what sort of books that I, I were missing as a kid, but I'm thinking of, uh, they're really, I can't think of any books that I read as a kid where there was a father figure who was, was protective or, or modeling anything for, for the main character. And I think something that, that showed, uh, a young man or or a boy who is able to be heroic on the basis of empathizing or heroic on on the basis of uh, not being the center but 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 helping other people be successful mm-hmm. um, you know i I realize that these are maybe uh, stereotypical traits as i'm as I'm thinking about them, but when you have male characters or boys as, as the protagonists. And it's just this really flat depiction of what masculinity is. There's, there's nothing to latch on to. Mm-hmm. So you didn't so much relate with kind of the aggressive or competitive or macho modeling of the male protagonist, but you would have related a lot more with a male protagonist that had more heart that was maybe more like gentle and noble and really a protective figure, but not someone who put his ego front and center. I guess there's this image coming to mind for me of a character and I can't remember the name of the show, but there was this fantasy series. I think it was on HBO that I watched and it was very female centric in some ways because the, there were women who had these powers and abilities but every strong woman had this male companion who was like her best friend and her bodyguard and who knew her inside and out and and he was there to protect her and and he was quiet and virtuous and there's just this image of that male that's coming to mind that sounds like more like the type of character that you would have resonated with maybe i think that a, a a book that had a uh, two male characters that had each of those archetypes in them might have been interesting as well. Okay, so um on a related note, there's another question for you. Cassandra Z asks, I love Corinna. I'd love to know what is Corinna's media diet? Books, TV, podcasts, blogs. Mm, uh I have a a very bad diet right now. So I recommend that if you're following something similar to to stop doing it, to take my advice and not follow my action. But every single day now, there's probably, uh, this is good, this is positive, but there's probably three or four major articles coming out now that are in the the gender um, battlefield. I I read a couple of great things today. There was a piece in the New York Times that, um, did I say I read a great piece and it was in the New York Times? No, I read a great piece and it was in the Boston Globe. But I also read a piece that was in the New York Times today uh, that was about uh, girls who are having uh, mastectomies. Uh, I'm I'm just constantly underwater at this point, just trying to keep up on everything. There were some um, academic articles that came out this week uh, that I wanted to put some time aside this weekend to catch up on, and I still haven't. And it's just constant, and it shouldn't be like that. I should be reading more things for pleasure. I should be broadening my 
scope of the world, um, reading more uh, nonfiction, trying to keep my uh, career skills up to date by reading things that are that are in those types of fields. I have some books on on organizational theory and leadership that have been uh, languishing just a couple chapters in and I stopped. I just, I need to get back to those, but, but my diet right now has just been a fire hose of gender and I can't do that indefinitely. And nobody else should have to do it either. Anybody who's in this field or, or in this domain needs to take breaks. You're going to get just completely burned to a crisp. If you, if you don't, develop and nurture other interests. Okay. Well said. Um, there are a lot more questions for you, but I'm going to respect your time and limits and we don't have to answer everyone, especially because these are really challenging questions with no obvious answers. And such. some of them we kind of touched on peripherally, like the sensitivity around like who, if anyone, and under what conditions should have access to these medical services and so on. So we'll kind of skip the questions like that. I do have to ask you, since it is on my mind, what is your take on the trans-identified male that thinks he's having a period? It's frustrating that you would even leave room for doubt that trans women can have periods too. Because don't you know that trans women can also experience painful cramping and diarrhea and mood swings and that all of these are, are hormonally regulated just like a regular woman? It's, it's, it's just terrible that you have to even ask. You shed a uterine lining just like me? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, in, in fact, I'm, you know, trans women are, of course, superior to uh, cis women. So I, I, I shed my uterine uterine lighting at least twice a month oh wow um, oh that sounds oh, yeah. really oh, rough yeah. <laughs> uh, it's it's worse than you can possibly imagine no it's, yeah, my, it's my just pain the, the craziest thing uh, the idea that uh, a man can expend, experience a, a menstrual cycle is is just bizarre and i i don't feel as bad for the people who are making the claims as I do for the somewhat serious people who are repeating them, mm. including there's a, a research grant right now that is recruiting trans women who experience uh, menstrual symptoms so that they can be further researched. And it's, it's lunacy in, in my opinion, but. Well, maybe uh, we'll find I'll, out if it, just how factitious it is or, or we'll find out if, you know, there's something about these, wrong sex hormones that actually causes some kind of abdominal cramping, you know, because my thought is either that's histrionic bullocks or you need to get yourself to a doctor because that's not a period. That's something that's, you know, some kind of, yeah, it's, but I mean, do crazy. you experience abdominal cramping? Well, if I make my chili too hot, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but it tastes it tastes good. You get the endorphin rush, which mm-hmm. makes it worth the cramps. But I, otherwise, no, I don't have any. Mm-hmm. But I'll I'll tell you something, and this is this is true, and it might also beggar belief. But there are some doctors, gender clinicians. I don't know if anybody's doing it in 2022, 
But historically, some of these clinicians would have their trans woman patients cycle their hormone uh, therapy to simulate the menstrual cycle of a woman. To what end? I have no idea. It was ostensibly so that trans women could experience a menstrual cycle, but it is it is just absolutely insane that anyone thinks that that would uh, work or 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 be a benefit. But you know, I'm sure somebody's listening to this right now, thinking, "Well, it's absolutely insane that they would give estrogen to men with the expectation that they would become women." So uh, it's only a matter of degree. Yeah. Well, on that very bizarre note, um, we will do our best to wrap up. I'm sorry to all the folks that we, um, who, who asked questions that we couldn't get to today, but I really appreciate everyone's participation. Um, this is kind of a trial run of, I'm in the process of maybe turning on super follow on Twitter so that uh, you can super follow me for the privilege of asking questions of my guests because right now, if I put if I name who my guest is going to be with enough advance notice, as I seemed to have done this time, there are actually too many questions to answer. So, anyone listening to this thinking I really wish I had had a chance to ask Corinna a question today, think about super following me. That feature is not turned on yet, but it might be in the near future. Um, so, Corinna, what? are you up to and where can people find you? You may find me on Twitter using the handle heterodorks. That is, that was supposed to have only been for announcing upcoming podcast episodes, but I have ruined it. I apologize, Mina. You can find my podcast at heterodorks.com. And if you would like to read my Substack, everybody's got one now. You can find it at corinna.com excuse me, corinnacone.substack.com. Right. And just to clarify, uh, heterodorks is spelled with an X, not a KS at the end. All right. Well, Corinna, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Was there anything else you wanted to mention? I didn't, but I, I do want to say out of respect for your turning on the super tweets feature, once this episode gets Pub- published, I will no longer answer any questions on Twitter. <laughs> in- unless they, unless they're your super followers in that case, then I will. Very funny. Um, <laughs> I, I hope you continue to answer people's questions on Twitter. Um, and honestly, these questions are like, you could write a book on them. So I appreciate the time that you do put into having these tough conversations and and the humor and kind of levity that you bring to it all. Um, It's been great talking and... Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, and thanks again for having me on Heterodorks. You can find find me on episode 75 of Heterodorks. All right, bye, Corinna. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. 
If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at sometherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.